Well, in keeping with the theme of missions today, I, I wanted to begin by asking you a question. And that is, when did the missions movement, the Christian missions movement, begin? I think many might come in our minds, you know, it didn't start here in the States in the 1900s at Urbana, 1900s in Urbana. It didn't start with the English Baptist Missionary Society in the 1800s. It didn't start with the Moravians in the 1700s or even the Reformation, right? We can go all the way back and trace all the way back in our history that the missions movement began right after Pentecost. And it began not because of a church committee decision, It didn't begin because uh, there was uh, some missions conference or someone who suddenly felt the need to go outside Jerusalem to share the gospel. Actually, it may surprise you to learn that the missions movement, the Christian missions movement, began with an execution. It began with the murder of a brother in Christ. Our brother Stephen. Luke 8 writes about him. And after he was stoned to death, Luke gives us these words. He says, Saul, this is Luke 8, 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Notice here, Stephen's death did not bring about the the result that was intended by those who killed him, did it? Because notice, it see, it did scatter the believers, that's what they wanted, but it did not stop them from proclaiming the gospel. In fact, Luke, note, Luke notes specifically, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And so we could say that the missions movement really began by way of persecution, by suffering, by trials, even the death of one of our brothers. And as we think about the history of Christianity, our history, that persecution hasn't stopped. It's been going ever since. And as we, Tina and I talked about in the first hour, we mentioned uh, as we were visiting in Pakistan that the challenges that many of our brothers and sisters face there. We talked to you about uh, the situation where a church service on a Christmas day was interrupted by a suicide bomber who came in and detonated. We spoke with many other believers in their struggles. They're, they suffer discrimination, abuse, violence, children being raped, unspeakable things that happen to them today, now, our own brothers and sisters, your family members, going through suffering. The man I mentioned, the pastor I mentioned, who's a, a dear friend and a contact there in that country, he's faced a number of threats himself. He told me, Last year, in fact, he was riding on a bus, and a man came and sat down next to him and and listed off the names of his children, the name of his wife, their address, where his kids went to school, and then opened up his coat, and there's a gun in there, and he says, you stop teaching Jesus. And he said, just a few uh, months, a couple months ago, he had another threats that were given to him. So he, among many others are suffering persecution. This is happening today in our world. Even in this country, we're starting to see more attacks against Christianity. But despite those threats, despite the dangers, despite the risks, the suffering, and the hardship, that pastor friend of mine told me he was not going to leave the country but continue to preach the gospel, even in the face of his threats to himself and his family. And when it comes to suffering as a missionary, he's not alone. 
right? The Apostle Paul, the great pioneer of missions in the early church, he too went through much suffering on the mission field. In 2 Corinthians 11, he describes his own personal experiences with that suffering. He says in verse 24 of chapter 11, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea. You get the idea, right? False brethren, I've been in labor and hardship, many sleepless nights. It's quite a list. And he could have added more to that. Betrayal, loneliness, false accusations, those who questioned his motives, those who challenged his apostleships, and on and on it goes. And as I think about Paul, as I think about my pastor friend in South Asia, as I think about the many others who are going through things like this, how do they keep going? What motivates them to continue? For my friend to, to look me in the eye and say, I'm not leaving this country. They need to hear the gospel. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at him going, what, what is it that motivates him to make that commitment? How do they keep going? How do they continue? And for us today, what can we learn from them? What can we learn from their example as instructed through the word of God to be motivated to continue in Christ's mission, even with difficulties? And brothers and sisters, it's coming this way. It's coming. What are you going to do? How are you going to be motivated to continue to live for Christ and proclaim the gospel and live for Him in the face of persecution and trials and suffering? Well, I want to take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we will see what Paul himself tells us directly as to what motivated him. To press on despite the hardships. Now this letter in 2 Corinthians is a personal letter written by Paul in response to false teachers who were accusing him, who were attacking his character, accusing him of evil motives, that that Paul had come for things other than preaching the gospel. He had come for selfish reasons. And so so Paul writes this letter of 2 Corinthians in order to defend his apostleship. But it wasn't for his own ego. It wasn't to build up his own self-esteem. He was actually concerned about the integrity of the gospel message, that those who were going about trying to undermine him, that it would infect his message to the Corinthians. And so he writes this letter to let the Corinthians know what it was exactly that motivated him to bring the gospel to them. Verses 11 to 21 of chapter 5, he makes three declarations about what motivated him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And these declarations give us three motivations ourselves to hold fast to our mission to proclaim the gospel. So I titled this message, Three Reasons for a a Mission-Minded Motivation. We want to be motivated, but motivated by the right things. And to do that, we need to go to God's Word before we do, if I, I'd like to ask you to pray along with me just so God would give us insight from His Word now. Lord, I do pray that You would guide and direct us. Lord, that You would keep us attentive, that You enable us to understand, that Your Spirit would be at work in our own hearts. Lord, to apply whatever it is You want us to apply from Your Word. Help me to be accurate and clear, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, so 2 Corinthians 5, let's consider his first declaration to have a, mission, a missions-minded motivation. And we find it in verses 11 to 13. And that motivation is simply this, a reverence for Christ. A reverence for Christ. Look with me at verse 11. Paul says, So then, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we have been made manifest to God, and I hope that we have been made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an opportunity to boast of us, so that you will have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are of right mind, it is for you. Now notice Paul says here, we persuade men. That word persuade means to to convince, to appeal to, to try to win over. In fact, it's used several times in the book of Acts to describe what Paul was doing as he went about on his mission's work. Uh, Acts 19.8, it says that he, when he was in Ephesus, it says he continued to speak out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. Or in Acts chapter 28, Luke says Paul was explaining to those he was with by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. And so as Paul uses this word persuade here, it's this idea of it's speaking primarily of gospel proclamation. But what was it that motivated him to persuade? What was it that prompted him? Why was he willing to face the persecution and the trials and the hardship in his mission's work? Well, notice that first word in verse 11. So then, or, or therefore. It's telling us that that what Paul is saying in verse 11 and following is connected back to something he just said. And in fact, it's something he said in the verse right before it. So look look up with me at, at verse 10. Paul here in this chapter is expressing his desire to please the Lord while on earth. And then he says this, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then he says, verse 11, So then, therefore, in response to this, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul's reflecting here that one day he would answer to Christ for what he did on this earth. And so he's prompted by that, saying, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. It was the fear of the Lord that motivated him. A reverence for Christ is this first motivation. And Lord here is a reference to Christ, because that is who he's speaking of in the previous verse. And Paul knew he was going to stand before our Lord. That one day he would be before him. Now, what exactly does he mean, though, here by the term fear of the Lord? Was he talking about terror? Oh no, someday I'm going to face Jesus. What am I going to do? Was he talking about that kind of fear? No, notice, it wasn't that he dreaded some punishment that was coming if he didn't do the work that he was given. Here in verse 10, the Bema seat is the judgment seat of Christ. That's what being described here, and it's primarily a seat of reward. In fact, they've discovered one of these in Corinth, that... uh, this judgment seat where often athletes would come, judgments would be made there, but also athletes would come to receive their reward after an athletic event. And so Paul here is not speaking of a cowering fear in standing before Christ. I think he's speaking here of a deep-seated reverence, an awe based on relationship. 19th century theologian Charles Bridges said these words, The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence 
by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. The affectionate reverence. I like that. I think it accurately reflects this idea. The word affectionate tells us the fear of the Lord is rooted in a relationship, but also reverence and affectionate reverence tells us it's a relationship of awe and respect and worship. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. He's picturing himself before the judgment seat of Christ, waiting to hear what Christ would say. And Paul could not fathom facing Jesus and saying he had done very little with the work God had given him to do. You know, we so often overlook in the Great Commission, uh, we, we focus on the command to make disciples, but what is it that Jesus said right before that? What did he tell the disciples there? All authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. You see, this wasn't a suggestion. This wasn't some, uh, just an idea Jesus had for a, a church movement. He was giving a command. And that command was not only to the disciples, but it extends to us, right? And so here we have to remember that this is not just a suggestion, but is a command from the one who has all authority in the universe. And so that's in front of Paul's mind as he's thinking about that day he would stand before Christ. And through an affectionate reverence, he wanted to please his master. Jesus is our friend. He is our savior. He is our brother, but he's also our master. He's our master. Right? What is it that Thomas said when he recognized that it was Jesus standing before him with the holes in his hands and and the thrust in his side, the cut in his side? What did he do? Do you remember? He he fell down, worshipped my Lord and my God, my master and my God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, we call Jesus Lord or master by the spirit of God. Or Jude 4 says that Jesus is our master. And so we are his servants, his slaves, because we were bought with a price from our master. And we exist to glorify Him. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says just a few verses later in verse 15. He says, we should no longer live for ourselves, but for Him. So Paul was motivated for missions out of a reverence for Christ. And it's important for us now to reflect and think about, how how about you? What is it that would motivate you to speak when you know you need to speak? Do you picture yourself one day standing before the Bema seat? Do you picture yourself one day as Paul did, standing before Jesus and essentially giving a report of how you used the life that he gave you and the calling that he has given you? Do you want to give him a good report? Are you motivated to make disciples out of an affectionate reverence for our Lord? Paul was. And we need to follow his example in this. Now, the rest of verses 11 to 13 essentially uh, talks about how God knows Paul's true motives and how he hopes that, that they would know his motives as well, not just for his sake, but for the sake of the gospel. And then he gives a second motivation beginning in verse 14, verses 14 to 17. We are motivated to be motivated for missions, not just out of a reverence for Christ, but because of the love of Christ. Look with me at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. 
And he died for all so that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Notice here, Paul begins in verse 14 with this second declaration, for the love of Christ controls us. And now he's referring here not to his love for Jesus, but Jesus' love for him. And he says here, controls. And that's the idea of uh, forcing or constraining something. It was used to express this idea of walls of of a river or of a canal that forces water a certain direction. And Paul is using this idea that, that he felt this pressure. I like the word compel. The love of Christ compels us. But it's not a negative pressure. It's not an obligation or an oppressive duty that Paul felt. It's more like the pressure that a mother feels to care for her infant baby. Or the pressure maybe of a teammate that wants to give his all for the sake of his team. It's a positive pressure. You can't help but be compelled. And so Paul here describes this love of Christ compelling him to do what? To bring the gospel to the lost. Look at verse 16. From now on, he says, we we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet yet we now know him in this way no longer. What does he mean by that? Well, he's saying here that, that he once saw Jesus as a pretender. He once, as Saul, believed Jesus to be a blasphemer and those who would proclaim Jesus also to be blaspheming. But after his conversion, all of that changed. He says, I don't see Jesus in the same way anymore. It's it's different now. I no longer see him through unspiritual or, or worldly or ignorant mindset. Paul says in verse 16, it's the same for people. He also once regarded people according to the flesh. He just looked on the outside. He just looked down on them through his self-righteous eyes. He didn't care about souls. He said, oh, look at that Gentile. I'm not getting anywhere near that guy. Or look at that guy. He's, He's not washing his hands like he's supposed to. Right? He would look down on people. He would look at Gentiles as the enemies. He would look at unreligious Jews as dirty and weak. But now in Christ, he doesn't see people that way anymore. Verse 16, he says, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. I'm not looking on the outside anymore, Paul says. As a Christian, he's been changed. That's why he says in verse 17, he's a new creation. Everything's different. If you're a new creation, you've been transformed, right? And that's the case for Paul. He sees the world now through different eyes, eyes of eternity. People have souls, and he saw them now as souls in need of Christ. Gentiles were no longer the enemy. They were the lost. Unbelievers were no longer those deserving to be damned, but those needing a Savior. He no longer despised them. He was now burdened for them, burdened for their soul. And and we've got to stop here and just stand in amazement at this. Who, Who is this guy? You remember, he was instrumental in starting the missions movement, but not on purpose, right? He was there at that day at the persecution of Stephen at his death, and they were laying his jackets at his feet and their tunics at his feet out of respect for Paul, likely because he initiated and led that attack. And here, this guy, in God's amazing grace, 
Saul the great persecutor is now Paul the great missionary. Isn't that amazing? The power of God. A man who once hated Christ is now compelled by Christ's love for him. Compelled by a love that bound him to this path. A path where he gladly sacrificed everything. Right? Eventually he was beheaded. He sacrificed everything for Christ's mission. And just in God's great irony, a mission to the Gentiles of all people. This guy Paul, who once hated them. Brothers and sisters, if we are to be compelled in the same way as Paul, we need to see the lost the same way as Paul. And we need to remember and be motivated by the love of Christ. Look again at verse 14. The love of Christ compels us. Having concluded this, that one died for all. Then verse 15, he died for all. Verse 15 again, he died and rose again on their behalf. Three times he died for all. He died for all. He died on their behalf. He's talking here about substitutionary atonement. He's talking here about in his death, Jesus took upon himself the punishment that you and I deserve, that you and I earned. Remember what Jesus said in John 15? Greater love has no one than this, than talk to me now. He who lays down his life for his friends. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Jim Elliott. Reminds me of his wife, Elizabeth. Her husband Jim went to Ecuador and had trained for many years to prepare to reach an unreached people group there, the Alca tribe. And when he arrived there on the beach that first week they were staying there, tribesmen came out with spears, put Jim and four others to death before they even got a chance to bring the gospel. Well, it was about a year later, Jim's wife, Elizabeth, they had a one-year-old daughter at that time that he was killed, went back to that very tribe, the ones that had murdered her husband. She continued his work with the same burden that he had. She lived and dwelled and served among the very people who had killed her husband. Why did she do this? She said it was the love of Christ that compelled her. Reminds me of my friend in, in Pakistan who... You know, after that, the death threats, he described, I said, brother, what, why do you keep going? And he says, I want the people here in my country to know the love of Christ as I have known it. So he's compelled. By the way, one of the first people that came to Christ in that Ecuadorian village was one of the men who had speared, speared those men on the beach. The Lord had showed him mercy. And certainly her example and and my brother's example are incredible examples of love, but there is one far greater example of love, isn't there? When the holy, good, sovereign Lord of the universe became a man, suffered as a man, and hung on a tree for his enemies. Right, That's how Romans 5 describes us. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. This is the greatest expression of love the world has ever seen. Brothers and sisters, to think that Jesus would come here and give his life for you and for me, 
The love of Christ should compel us. We don't often reflect on it. Jesus paid it all. We sang that earlier today. And he did that out of reverence and submission to the Father and out of love for, for us. And what makes it more compelling is how that love, that his sacrifice for any who would put their trust in him, would, the Spirit would transform our hearts, transform into a new purpose, a new direction, a new person, a new creation, as Paul says. And we, we, did, we see this in verse 15. Notice it says there, He died for all so that they who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And then Paul sums it up again in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and new things have come. What's he telling us there? Look, if you're a Christian, everything's changed. You're different now. Not only in the capacity, the ability to obey and to follow Christ, but even in your own heart and your own attitude towards others, especially the lost. Everything's different. You have a new master and a new heart. So because of that, we now embrace his purpose as our purpose. His mission as our mission, which is what? What are you and I called to do? To make disciples of all nations. All nations. And as Paul said in verse 16, because we are new creatures, we should look at people differently, right? We should now, like Paul, have an eternal perspective on those who are around us and those who are around the world. You know, when I'm out with my daughter, Bree, uh, she, uh, my youngest, suffered uh, some severe disabilities, uh, significant uh, deformation from a birth defect. And when I'm out with her, I'm aware, and I I know my wife's aware, people stare at her because she looks different. And we can see those eyes of curiosity, the puzzled looks, people that are curious. And those bother me, but they don't bother me as much as those who look down at her with disgust. As if she were some abnormal creature. And brothers and sisters, we can do that to people in a spiritual sense. We can look down on those who don't believe what we believe. We can look with disgust at those who don't think the way we think, don't have the same morals, values that we have, have different political views, those from different faiths or those who have no faith. We can look down on them. But that's looking at people according to the flesh, isn't it? See, we have all these categories that we put people in, don't we? If we're honest with ourselves. But really, there's only two that we need to be concerned about. There's only two, and it doesn't have to do with skin color or nationality or ethnic background or intelligence or class or wealth or education or abilities or skills or what religion a person follows. There's only two kinds of people, saved or lost. Those with Christ or those without Christ. Those attended to eternal death or eternal life. That's it. Only those two categories. That's all that matters. But some of the social media posts I see from Christians as they respond to various political or theological issues, it grieves me. Not that they disagree, but in how they disagree. People are not the enemy. They're the mission field. 
you catch that? They're not the enemy. They're the mission field. We have an enemy, but it's not people. In fact, what did Paul say? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's not who we're fighting here. Now, they could be instruments of the enemy, but they're not the enemy. And that's what just so amazed me as we were sitting there. I described in the first hour how we were with this Islamic terrorist. And my friend is preaching the gospel to this guy, knowing it could cost him his life. Why? Why was he doing that? To, to win an argument? No, because that guy's lost. He needs Christ, even though he committed some horrible things against our brothers and sisters. But you see, we don't look at people according to the flesh anymore, do we? If we are new creatures, the love of Christ compels us to be burdened, even for those who treat us as enemies. We have a mission, don't we? To be ambassadors, not to fight for our rights and comforts. To rescue those headed for eternal destruction, not condemn them. We're to be salt and light to this world. Why? Out of a reverence for Christ and because of the love of Christ. There's a third motivation Paul gives us here in this text. Starting in verse 18, look there with me. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. So then, we are ambassadors for Christ as God is pleading through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, did you catch a word repeated there in this text? What was it? Reconciliation. Five times here in three verses, Paul uses the word reconciliation or a variation of it. Twice in verse 18, twice in verse 19, once in verse 20, and then he illustrates it in verse 21. And it's in these verses we find the, the third and I think most powerful motivation to have a missions mindset, and that is reconciliation, reconciliation through Christ. It's not just a reverence for Christ, not just because of the love of Christ, but also reconciliation that we've been given through Christ. Notice here, Paul uses that word multiple times, and I think he's the only New Testament author to use this particular word, this particular Greek word, katalasso is the word, and it basically has the idea of an exchange of money or goods. But when it's used in regards to relationships, it has this idea of exchanging friendship or hostility for friendship. And that's how Paul's using it here. Listen, for God to reconcile you, you know what that means? No longer does he see you as an enemy, but as a friend. And this reconciliation that Paul speaks of, it goes beyond the doctrine of substitution, beyond the doctrine of justification, which means to be declared not guilty, and he alludes to that in verse 21. Certainly, substitutionary atonement, justification, those are wonderful gospel truths. But when it comes to God's reconciliation, we have to pause and reflect, because reconciliation is personal. 
Let me have you, let's picture a, a courtroom scene. And we're all standing before the judge, guilty of the crimes that we've been accused of. And the judge is ready to hand out a sentencing. And in this illustration, the doctrine of justification would be as if the judge put down the gavel and said, not guilty. The doctrine of substitution would be that, that the, the, the basis for declaring us not guilty is that the judge would say, your punishment has been paid for, so you don't need to pay for it. In fact, it was the judge himself who took upon himself the punishment that we, we deserve. But here's where reconciliation would come into this illustration. It would be when we realize the crimes that we've committed, the crimes which we deserve to be punished for, punished severely for, those crimes were committed against the judge himself. And that now the judge is saying, not only are you not guilty based upon the fact that I paid for your crimes, but now you are my friend. Right? If you have put your trust in Christ alone, he's adopted you. It's not just as, okay, I'm going to tolerate you. You don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven, but stay over there. That's not it at all. Romans talks about we've been adopted as sons and daughters. He invites us not just to enter into his kingdom, not just enter into his palace, but to enter into his family. That's what reconciliation means. It's personal. We were the sinners, right? Romans 5.8. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. We were the enemies. We were the guilty ones. We were the sinners. But the gospel declares that through faith in Christ, we are made friends. You know, right after Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than to give his life for his friends, and then he turns to his disciples and he says, and you are my friends. Amazing. I have called you friends. All that we have done against God, all the sins that we have committed, all the wrongs we have carried out, and he offers us peace, friendship. It's just incredible to think about. And we need to remember, right, we were not the ones that sought peace with him. Notice verse 18. All these things are from God who reconciled us. Verse 19, God was reconciling the world. Verse 21, God made him who knew no sin. Right? We were the ones that did not take action. In fact, we could not take action. We were dead in sin. Romans 3.11 says there's none who seeks for God. He sought for us. He came to us. There was nothing we could do to make it right. God who brought reconciliation. Murray Harris said this, Reconciliation does not occur apart from God or in spite of God, but because of God. Notice again how this happens. Verse 18, God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world. Verse 21, he made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the only way reconciliation can happen. It is through Christ. That's the only way to have peace with God is through His Son because He is the one who offered Himself as a payment for sin. There's no other way 
to be right before God. There's no other way to become from an enemy to a friend. It is only through Christ that He took upon Himself the punishment you and I deserved. The Son of Man had to become the sin-bearer of man for this to happen. Notice verse 21. It says that very thing. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That doesn't mean Jesus was made a sinner, but that He was treated as a sinner. And He was treated as a great sinner. Suffering the wrath of God on the cross. And he did not just bear the sins of one or two people for a day or two. He bore the sins of all believers in all human history. Just think about your own life. If you were to tally up how many sins you've committed, I could come up with a big number for myself. And it's not just me, but all who put their trust in him. Jesus bore the weight, the punishment for all of that. 1 Peter 2 was mentioned earlier. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. You've probably heard it said, this means that on the cross, God treated Jesus as if He lived your life. And by faith in Him, He treats us as if we lived His call that the great exchange. J. Vern McGee said it this way, and I don't know if I can match his accent, but he took my hell down here that I might have heaven up yonder. Actually, that was more of a Steve Lawson uh, twang there. But it was more than heaven we were given, right? It was, it was the righteousness of Christ. It was friendship with God. And that right standing only comes through Christ, as Paul said in Philippians 3, 9, found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. I didn't do it, but it was through faith in Christ. The righteousness was comes from God on the basis of faith. And I obviously I don't know everyone here, and I don't know what brought you here this morning. I don't know where you are at in your relationship to Christ, but as we talk about reconciliation, like Paul here, who, who just broke in and he said, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because he didn't know where every reader was at with the Lord, just like I don't know where all of you are at with the Lord. But I do beg you, consider this carefully. Are you reconciled? Have you put your trust in Christ alone? Do you see that you are a new creature, a new creation? Have you been transformed? Does your view of others, has it changed now? Are you burdened for the lost? Are you burdened to live for Christ? Do you see growth in your life? Again, not perfection, but do you see progression? That God is doing a work in you. Only you can answer that question. Have you put your complete trust in Him? Have you truly repented, turned away from your sin to follow Christ? Have you submitted to Him as Lord? And notice I didn't ask you if you're a Christian. I didn't ask you if you pray or read your Bible. I didn't ask you if you come to church consistently here. Now, those are all good things. We need to do that. But we do that as a response. Not in order to win God's favor, but because of God's favor. Is there evidence in your life you are true, uh, that you are truly reconciled to God? Because he extends his hand of friendship now, but it's not going to always be that way. 
one day you will face him. And if you are not reconciled to him, he will not extend mercy on that day, but judgment. Now, if you are reconciled, you've received great blessings from that reconciliation, haven't you? And so Paul here, in response, wants to now send that message, give that message out of reconciliation to others. Notice verse 18, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. And again, in verse 20, God's making an appeal through us. So he understood that when he understood Christ, a reverence for Christ, the love of Christ, and now reconciliation through Christ, he's motivated to tell others about it. So hold fast to our mission, brothers and sisters, to make disciples of all the nations. And if you're struggling with that motivation, because it's going to get harder here, may this be one of the passages that you turn to to remember how to be motivated, to be missionaries, to be sent out ones for Christ in your spheres. Do it out of a reverence for Him, a love, His love for you, and then also His reconciliation. On the campus of Wheaton College in Illinois, there's a plaque dedicated to one of its graduates, Jim Elliott. And on that plaque is this passage. The words of 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ constraineth us. And then above that passage on the plaque, it says these words, Because of the Great Commission, Ed and Jim, together with Nathaniel and Roger and Peter, went to the mission field, willing for anything, anywhere, regardless of the cost. They chose the jungles of Ecuador, inhabited by the Alca Indians for generations. All strangers were killed by them. After many days of patient preparation and devout prayer, the missionaries made the first friendly contact known in history with the Alcas. On January 8, 1956, the five missionaries were brutally slain, martyrs for the love of God. Just a few months after Jim Elliott graduated from Wheaton, he was preparing for the mission field and he wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Christ is worth the sacrifice. His message is worth the sacrifice, and the lost are worth the sacrifice. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we must confess it is a great challenge for us to be your ambassadors Lord, I know that the need for boldness on my part, and I'm sure my brothers and sisters, even Paul, <laughs> had asked for prayer, for boldness. So we need it, Lord. We need to be motivated in the right way to carry out your mission. Lord, to be motivated out of a reverence for you because of your love for us and because of the reconciliation we have through you to be motivated, Lord, to bring that message to the lost around us, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, communities, and even, Lord, around the world. I thank you for this church. Thank you for Grace Bible Church. I pray that you would 
use this church as a beacon of light in this community, that many more souls would come. That you would bless this church with the privilege to share your word and to see the fruit of that. Lord, I pray that you would enable my brothers and sisters, empower them to be faithful, continue to bless the elders, give them wisdom, direction as a shepherd. I pray for Pastor Steve, just continue to use him in a mighty way as he proclaims your truth. God, we thank you. Thank you so much for Christ, for the gospel, and for the privilege to be proclaimers of that gospel. In his name we pray. Amen.